Swinging. He's got two out of three, a single and a double, and Billy Cox is swinging him right on the third base line. One out, last of the night, back of pitches, Bobby Thompson takes a strike call on the inside corner. Bobby hitting at 292. He's had a single and a double, and he drove in the Giants' first run with a long fly to center. Brooklyn leads it 4-2. Hartung, down the line in third, not taking any chances. Watson without too big of a lead in second, but he'll be running like the wind of Thompson hits one. Back and throws. There's a long fight! I can't be able to lead! The Giants make a panic! 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 Bobby Thompson hits into the line back of the left field stadium! The Giants make a panic! And they're going crazy! They're going crazy! Welcome, one and all, to another exciting edition of the George Sanders Show. Tying in with opening day of baseball season, we're going to be talking about two baseball-related films this week. Director Sam Wood's The Pride of the Yankees uh, from 1942, and uh, John Batum's 1976 film The Bingo Long Traveling All-Stars and Motor Kings. Uh, We'll also be discussing the life of Akira Kurosawa, because it's his birthday today as we record. He would be 104. Um, And we're also going to pick our Cinema Central baseball films. Uh, with me as always is Sean Gilman. Hello, Sean. Are you over your Diet Coke hangover? Not really, no. <laughs> Sean went out for the first time in a long time last night and uh, drank pitcher and pitcher of uh, Diet Coke. And so he's... <laughs> yeah, it, it, <laughs> he's, was, it was ugly. <laughs> Don't let him out of the house, people. No. Things get crazy. Absolutely um, not. That's right. Uh, let me ask you this. Are you more excited for the upcoming baseball season, or are you more excited about talking about uh, baseball movies? Uh, <laughs> or do you not care about either, and is this a total waste of your time? I'm a Seattle Mariners fan, so I, I greet the, <laughs> the approach of every new season with, with nothing but dread. Yeah. So I am uh, slightly less dreading doing this podcast, so I'll, just, <laughs> I'll go with that. All right. Well, this isn't going to be as long as a Mariners, uh, I was going to say season, but also a game. So uh, I think we should start it off with a talk of... Hopefully our last few episodes have been... That's true. Up there. That's true. We might go into extra innings today. Who knows? Uh, (laughs) Let's talk about Pride of the Yankees. I must say, miss, you picked out the most beautiful number in the store. Ellie, if you are looking for the ship of roll, I found it, Mom. Just what I want. Isn't it lovely? Don't look very practical. And it looks secondhand, too. It's an antique. Louis can afford to buy new stuff. I'll show you. Look at that. Strong and practical. Last a lifetime. Mom, I've worked out sort of a scheme. It was only a suggestion. You see the rug in the bedroom. The rug. You remind me. I'll show you. Take a look at that. This is exactly the right size for your living room. Oh, I was planning on something more, a pastel shade. It's almost an exact duplicate of the first rug we had in our place. Only more so. That's why I bought it for you. It's your wedding present, Ellie. 
Okay, that was uh, probably the most famous clip from the Pride of the Yankees. That was uh, Elsa Jansen uh, as uh, Lou Gehrig's mom talking to Teresa Wright, his wife, uh, which I think is probably, you know, shown in most clips uh, for this film. <laughs> when, when you think of, of Pride of the Yankees, you, you think of interior decorating and, <laughs> and domestic squabbles. So. Right. I don't, there's no speech or anything at the end of this movie that really grabs you quite as much as the, uh, the wallpaper discussion. <laughs> uh, not, not in the version I saw. Doesn't it end with like, him uh, getting like, the diagnosis and then it like, fades to black in the end? <laughs> That's right. Yep. I thought that exactly. was kind of abrupt. It was an odd choice by, by director Sam Wood. It was very interesting. Um, we jest, ladies and gentlemen, we jest. Uh, the Pride of the Yankees is the story of uh, Lou Gehrig, uh, famed baseball player for the New York Yankees, part of the Murderer's Row squad in the, uh, the late 20s and um, up until uh, the late 30s. And, uh, you know, he's... He's an interesting character in baseball history. You know, he uh, he was very straight and narrow kind of guy, very kind of square, um, which we see. You know, the difference between him and someone like Babe Ruth, who is playing himself in this movie version, uh, who's you know a, a partier and a gregarious, loud kind of guy. And uh, anyway, so this film uh, charts the entire kind of career and life of of. Lou Gehrig, and he's played by Gary Cooper, um, who was just a couple years older, um, I think, than Lou Gehrig was um, when he passed away when he made this film. And this movie came out really quickly um, after Lou Gehrig died. Lou Gehrig died uh, about a year um, before um, from a disease that, uh, strangely enough, is called Lou Gehrig's disease. I mean, who to thunk he would have caught that? But... Um... <laughs> That's like the oldest Lou Gehrig joke ever. It's such a fun moment. You should be ashamed of yourself. Uh, I am ashamed of myself. <laughs> At least I'm not recording this podcast naked. Yeah. Uh, so anyway, so yeah, this is, you know, it's a biopic about about the life of, of Lou Gehrig. And let me ask you this, because, you know, he he's, you know, nobody can argue that Lou Gehrig... Uh, was a bad baseball player or doesn't deserve, you know, being in the Hall of Fame or, you know, being part of baseball history. You know, he's a great player. Let me ask you this, though, because I did mention he's kind of a square. Is he an interesting enough character to carry a movie, Sean? Um, no. <laughs> Not really. He's just... He's... Would, you, would, you, would you rather have watched, you know, uh, a Babe Ruth or Mickey Mantle or, or Yogi Berra? Uh, there are there are very few baseball players who would be worthy of of a biopic, and I don't know that any of them would be. There was a there was a guy named Mo Berg who was a, a catcher, I think, for the Brooklyn Dodgers that also worked as like a spy in World War II. He might make an interesting movie, and then uh, uh, some of the Negro League players, which we'll we'll talk to when we talk about the second movie we're going to talk about this week, um, have some really interesting stories, but. Uh, no, not not Lou Gehrig. Yeah, he's kind of boring. <laughs> but but that is also, you know, paradoxically what makes him perfect for this movie because less than a, a baseball movie, it's it's a movie about a a certain ideal of of heroism. And the the movie starts with this kind of dedication written by by Damon Runyon 
that uh, who who we talked about when we uh, we talked about Frank Capra's Lady for a Day uh, several episodes ago, and Runyon uh, specifically identifies the the admirable traits in Lou Gehrig and equates them with the uh, the traits of the young Americans who are going off to fight in World War II, right. and. Uh, so this is very much a World War II film. It's very much an American propaganda film. It's, it's saying that, that this guy is the embodiment of the American character, and this is what we're aspiring to. And when we think of our, you know, our boys overseas, we should think of them as Lou Gehrig's. And the way that he faced his own certain death is, is equated in the way that, that these guys going over there to face death are it's that same kind of courage right yeah it's it, like you said it's blatantly spelled out uh at the beginning of the film um and you know and to its credit you know i think that um i think the movie sells that um you know i'm, I'm not necessarily completely buying it but uh you know i think they do an admirable job of you know there's something to say for that you know stoic you know kind of humble um yeah he's he's, he's he's exceptionally modest he's he's yeah. very square he's very shy he uh is is unassuming he's polite to everyone he he you know he wants to do you know he wants to please his mother uh he he doesn't drink he doesn't gamble he doesn't do all of like the crazy baseball player things that baseball players do he's always picked on by like the rich kids at columbia because he's poor he only he only gets into columbia because his mom works there as a cook and so he is he is this this kind of idealized figure and from all accounts garrig actually was that kind of guy yeah, this is like as as far as I know, um, this is there's not, you know, they're they're not hiding anything, you know, or they're you know they're not whitewashing this character. He's he is this bland, <laughs> which is uh, which is kind of interesting in and of itself. And I think the most interesting aspect of him that comes out in this movie, uh, and you mentioned it, is is this relationship with his mother. Like he's almost got like a a Norman Bates kind of obsession with his mother. Um, you know, it doesn't come, you know, it doesn't come to such, um, interesting ends, but, uh, as, as in psycho, but, um, yeah, he, he, uh, he, he does anything to please her. You know, he doesn't, she wants him to be an engineer like his uncle. Um, and you know, he, he blindly follows that, plan until circumstances she gets forced to go to the hospital um and he has to you know pay for her care and that's why he eventually signs with uh, the yankees to pay for her hospital bills and uh but anyway but yeah the the relationship between them i think is it's kind of weird i mean <laughs> like I, I know it's supposed to be this you know uh sign of his, you know, dedication and his, you know, his love and all this stuff. But, um, he's, he's really a pushover, <laughs> um, you know, and, and, you know, I think it's actually kind of appropriate that we played that clip of, uh, you know, his mom talking about the, the, um, wallpaper and, and stuff because, um, she's a very domineering force in his, in his family. And, um, yeah. I, I do like the, the, the blandness of his character 
forces the movie to go in in odd directions because there aren't like big scandals in his life and there aren't like crazy wacky adventures that he had that you would normally like fill out a biopic with like you know memorable scenes and and episodes uh there aren't that in 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 Garrick's life so what the film has to do is is focus on like these minute domestic details of his life and and his you know his uh romance with the the Teresa Wright character and just like the mundane details of her moving into their house and she and his mother arguing about like interior decorating. Yeah. Like you wouldn't see that. (laughs) What other baseball movie has a a scene even uses the word Schiffer robe (laughs) multiple times. Yeah. Um, Yeah. It's like a major plot element. Like it's a serious conflict in the story whether it's, or not they're going to have the shiffer robe in in their house <laughs> yeah it's definitely a lot of screen time is dedicated to it and it's it's probably the scene where you get the most emotion like you even get well i guess Teresa wright has has you know a very emotional scene when she realizes that he's going to die um but yeah it's it's the biggest blow up in the movie is regarding you know the the home decoration so um i th- i find that pretty interesting yeah, um I, I really like Teresa Wright in this like i i like Teresa Wright I think in, she's in fantastic. general but i think yeah. that that while like the the propagandistic elements of the film i think are interesting uh this movie would be would have been unbearable without Teresa Wright i think she's phenomenal i really do um she was nominated uh for the Academy Award for this, and I think I was reading this, she was nominated three years in a row um, for her first three years in in uh, the movies, and she totally deserves it. I mean, she's she's phenomenal. And um, yeah, what was there? There was this uh, Little Foxes, Mrs. Miniver, and Shadow of the Doubt. That's that's a pretty good first four movies. That's a pretty good string right there. Um, <laughs> Yeah, um, and the best one of does, those movies is the one that she didn't get nominated. She, for. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Shadow of a Doubt. Yeah, um, yeah. She she really sells, um, and they do this throughout the movie, not just with her. Um, you know, there's a there's a cop who, um, when Gary Cooper goes to propose to Teresa Wright in the middle of the night, he like takes a train um, to Chicago to see her at the end of the season, and. Um, and he goes to propose to her, and it's like four in the morning, and, and there's a cop that stops him as he's, you know, going to her door because he thinks something is afoot. You know, who is this creepy guy going to this this door? Um, and and the cop, when he finds out that it's Lou Gehrig, you know, is like head over heels. You know, he's just a fawning fanboy. And the movie does this a lot, where they have people's reactions to to Lou Gehrig, uh, you know, to kind of elevate him. Mm-hmm. And uh, but Teresa Wright does a, a wonderful job of. of really showing that love like she she's totally lost in his eyes throughout the whole movie and uh her smile oh my gosh <laughs> Teresa Wright's smile is a special effect uh in and of itself and so um I was really glad to see her here I was also glad to see um in a role that I at least I haven't seen him play um very often uh Walter Brennan is in here um as less of an old coot. <laughs> um, if anybody, you know, if you think of him as most people probably do from like Rio Bravo and stuff like that, um, he plays, you know, uh, a reporter who's kind of in charge of following Gehrig's career. And he's based on a real guy and stuff. And uh, it took me like a scene or two to be, to realize, hey, that's Walter Brennan. But uh, 
he's always a welcome presence too. You know, he doesn't get to do much, um, especially in the second half of the movie. He's kind of a reactionary character that has this antagonistic relationship with the reporter that's tasked with following Babe Ruth around. Um, but uh, but Walter Brennan's awesome too. <laughs> yeah, that that other reporter is played by by Dan Duryea, who is. Uh is one of the great heels in, in film noir in, in movies like woman in the window and Scarlet street. He's, he's a, a terrific kind of uh, slick playboy villain type guy. And, uh, and he'll show up a lot. And, and I actually liked him a lot here as like the one guy in the entire movie who doesn't think that Lou Gehrig is the greatest thing in the world. And he's like constantly, you know, losing wagers with Walter Brennan over, you know, whether or not Gehrig will succeed. And so, yeah, I, I like, I like that there was like one guy who was who was against him, other than like the the snobby you know frat guy at Columbia, who's, right? Who's just the worst? Yeah, oh, it's horrible. <laughs> but um, uh, but Brennan, have you have you seen uh, uh, John Ford's My Darling Clementine? Yeah, I talked about it last week on the show. That okay. yeah, Bren, uh, Brennan plays the the villain in that. The villain, and it's I, I think this yeah these are the last two Brennan. Uh, performances i've seen and i'm like oh my gosh walter brennan is incredible because like i mean i love him in in his other stuff too you know uh, to have and have not and other and other things um where he's kind of playing that that at yeah, least in well, my that's mind. like the old coot character and like the the howard right, fox exactly. movies he he does the old coot but he's you know he's actually an actor yeah and i was amazed at his portrait as the villain in uh in my darling clementine he was really really good and uh yeah, I mean, Walter Brennan's just great. Um, an interesting performance in this movie, um, and and an interesting portrayal is uh, Babe Ruth, uh, <laughs> who plays himself, as I mentioned at the beginning. Um, and what I find interesting about his appearance here is this movie, at least, there are like two scenes that really don't paint Babe Ruth in a really good light. It, um, the, the one in particular is there's a scene of a little boy in a hospital. And this is the probably where the movie gets the most cloying and uh, annoying for me. Um, but and, it starts and then, out... And then, and then it tops it. I know. Well, yeah, it brings it back. I know. It's, <laughs> it, I know. <laughs> we'll get to that. But, but it shows... But it's interesting because it shows Babe Ruth, you know, doing his, you know, greeting the sick kid, um, promising to hit a home run kind of thing that, you know, we've seen over and over again in, in stuff. But... The way it's depicted in this movie is is less of like uh, an altruistic kind of thing than like a, a photo op and uh, you know just kind of going for the glory as it were. Um, and I thought that was really interesting because anyway, the scene ends with Lou Gehrig doing the same thing for the kid, but with all the cameras and reporters gone. You know, so it just goes to show that you know Gehrig just cares about this kid as opposed to Babe Ruth, you know, looking for the fame and the and the glory, but. I thought that was really interesting that Babe Ruth was willing to, to, to like, I mean, maybe he didn't realize how that was going to come off, but I, I think uh, that that's more likely. Uh, I love, it, I, I actually, I really like Ruth's, Ruth's performance. I love his entrance. His, his first line is, is with him eating a sandwich. He like walks in the locker room with like this, this giant sub. I actually it's thought such he, a Babe Ruth thing to do. I actually thought he was a pretty, realistic uh presence on screen like a lot of apparently he lost like 70 pounds to get ready to do this because he had let himself go after he had retired a few years oh really yeah 
but he, uh, he he really worked to get in shape to to be in this movie. Well, and you know, if you've ever heard um, an athlete try and read lines, like <laughs> like even something as simple as I was listening to the Giants uh, spring training game today uh, on the radio, and you know they they do the little bumpers like you're listening to KNBR, and they have the the you know different Giants player read it you know between each inning or whatever, and. It, like these guys are just reading like one sentence off a piece of paper and it is the most like tone deaf. Hi, this is Brandon Crawford and you're listening to KNBR, you know, it's, and, and it's like, <laughs> I don't know, maybe it's the contrast, but Babe Ruth seems like really at home um, in this environment on screen. And maybe it's cause you know, he's in a locker room for most of it and stuff, but well, you know, he'd, he has he'd this... also been like the most famous player on the planet for 25 years. And he'd done a lot of media over that time. So right. he has a lot right. more experience than, than like random giants player. Right. Sure. I absolutely. But um, yeah, but I, I, I did like seeing him here. Um, it, it gave a little bit of, you know, I actually thought that that uh, Bill Dickey gave a, a really intro- good performance. He plays uh, in in the later scenes. He's the the catcher as as Gehrig is uh, kind of starting to break down. He's like the guy who uh, one of the other Yankees is complaining that that Gehrig sucks, and Bill Dickey punches him in the face. Yeah, Bill Dickey. I I didn't realize that that was the actual Bill Dickey. <laughs> but yeah, he, he, he does a really good job. Like he, um, you know, he doesn't, he's not in a lot of scenes, but yeah, he definitely, um, yeah, he, he had like a, a screen presence. I think he could have had a, a movie career if he, if he'd wanted, he was like a, you know, this good looking blonde guy. And well, that's the thing, you know, Babe Ruth is an ugly dude. Like <laughs> I mean, you, you know, you couldn't have made a movie star out of him just by, you know, whew. but, um, what, what did you think of Gary Cooper? Because Gary Cooper is, uh, yeah, you haven't seen a lot of him, and he's an actor that, that it takes a while to kind of warm up to, I, I, I find. Uh, I actually, I think Gary Cooper is um, really good in this. Uh, you know, I don't think he's as great as Teresa Wright in, in that relationship, um, but he also kind of has a thankless role, too, because he, I mean, even though he's the star, he... He's he the most boring just, character. He's so boring. He has to play it super boring. Um, but I, yeah, I think he, I think he does a good job. And I, you know, on my letterbox review, like this movie, I should I should dislike this movie <laughs> um, because, uh, like we were talking about with the kid in the hospital bed, who does come back right before the end. Um, and Gehrig said that he hit, hit two home runs for him. If the kid gets up and walks again and, and lo and behold, the kid can walk again. And, you know, he sees Gehrig, you know, outside the entrance to Yankee stadium and says, look, look, Lou, I can walk again. And, you know, all those things are, are, you know, like kryptonite to me, usually when I'm watching a movie, but here, I still kind of got, you know, caught up in the whole, you know, thing by the end of it and i think a lot of that does have to do with gary cooper i think he um he he brings a gravity to it and uh you know the the famous speech that we were jokingly talking about not having at the end of the movie um i kind of got you know a little uh, bleary-eyed watching <laughs> watching that part so i think gary cooper I, you know i can't really think of do you think of anybody that could be that could have done this better in that era 
No, not not at all. I think I think Cooper is perfect. I think that that this kind of role is like the stereotypical Gary Cooper role, like this this very like you know stoic and and big and very stiff kind of figure, and that's not really that is him as an actor to an extent, but there's like, there's more sides to Gary Cooper. And I think that, that he tends to kind of get pigeonholed as a, as a very wooden actor. And if you watch some of his, his, uh, his earlier films, he's, he's a lot more interesting than that. You know, like, uh, uh, Joseph von Sternberg's Morocco or, uh, Ernst Lubitsch's Design for Living. Like there's, there is range to Gary Cooper. He's, he's not, you know, He's not exactly Cary Grant, but right. But there's a uh, there's more to him than just than just stiffness. Yeah, no, I mean, I think there are a couple of scenes with Teresa Wright where they're they're more playful with each other, um, and I I believe him in those scenes. He does a, he does a good job there. Um, I thought, I, I talk- thought it was uh, speaking of of the two of them. I thought it was interesting that. Uh, there's no in this in this film that is is very much a, a propaganda film about America's idea of itself. There's no mention of religion at all. Yeah, there's no there's no religious symbolism. There's no talk of God. They don't get married in a church. Nothing. I actually really like their their wedding scene. Um, it, it's it's those little touches that I think maybe um endear you to gary cooper where you know he's he's willing to just have his his wedding like in his living room that's being decorated with you know guys bringing like bathtubs in through the middle of it and stuff um yeah there is no talk of religion um and i and i don't know if that's just like that's just the way america was in the 1940s and maybe they were like less publicly religious than they are now that's what i was gonna um hazard as a guess because yeah because it, it i'm not as yeah i'm not as familiar as with the uh, the social mores of the time but but it seems like yeah you know those things kind of ebb and flow and uh yeah it seems to me like if a a similar movie was made today there would be you know especially such a a, a straight-laced figure as lou gehrig that there would be some kind of uh like christian angle to his um to his morality right just given yeah. our the cultural politics of of 21st century America as opposed to 1940s America, yeah, but, you but, yeah. you could totally make a you know Lou Gehrig into a Christ figure, you know, like sacrificing himself and yeah, it would be so boring. You know, we've t- we've addressed uh, the performances and stuff, but um, director Sam Wood is responsible uh, for the first two films that the Marx Brothers made uh, at MGM after. Um, Duck Soup kind of bombed at Paramount, and then they they jumped ship. Um, and those films, although Night at the Opera and Day at the Races are are well regarded, um, you know, they are square. the signs. Of, yeah, they're the signs of the Marx Brothers becoming square, and and they inject uh, you know needless emotional um, you know entanglements and stuff that I think completely bogged down the Marx Brothers. And uh, it's interesting to see him, because I think this is, I mean, he's done a lot of stuff, but uh, I think this is uh, one of the few ones that I've seen of his. Like, I haven't seen uh, Goodbye, Mr. Chips, or For Whom the Bell Tolls, or something like that. Um, but yeah, he's he's kind of a sentimentalist, at least from my, you know, readings. What do you think about him? Uh, he is... 
I mostly know him. I've, I've seen a few of his most, but I'm, he's mostly known to me as one of the the most conservative members of Hollywood in the 1940s and like a very pro House and American Activities Committee and and pro blacklist. Yeah. Uh, so he's he's a, a villain in a lot of the the histories of the period, and as as a director, he's very very uh, mediocre. Conservative. <laughs> he's just he's just mediocre. He's just not all of that uh, interesting. Yeah, I agree. I mean, he's, I, he's he's directed some good movies. Goodbye, Mr. Chips. I, I think is 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 a really good movie for for that kind of of thing. Uh, the Devil and Miss Jones is a a, a nice kind of uh, uh, screwball comedy with, with Charles Coburn and, uh, and Gene Arthur. Uh, I haven't seen uh, For Hoot and Bell Tolls or, or King's Row, but yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, but- yeah the, I thought it was interesting that, that he shares a, a title card with the production designer, uh, William Cameron Menzies, who's a much more interesting kind of creative figure in Hollywood. He was the the art director for like Gone with the Wind and and a lot of the more kind of visually interesting studio films of the, of the 30s and 40s and i i wonder how much role menzies played here because it frankly the the art direction didn't strike me as all that exciting I, they they didn't even they didn't shoot in in Yankee Stadium they shot in in Wrigley Field in Los Angeles and kind of made it to look like Yankee Stadium so i i guess that would be menzies contribution right not really sure. And uh, another uh, interesting uh, credit on the screen was it, it was co-written by by Herman Mankiewicz, who yep. just the year before had written Citizen Kane, and a, a more opposite film to The Pride of the Yankees <laughs> uh, could not be conceived than than Citizen Kane. <laughs> yeah, it, it 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 was weird seeing that credit too. I was like, huh? How does that how does that shake down? Um, but yeah, yeah. I, you know, yeah I'd say it's, this. Uh, uh, I'm on Sam Wood's Wikipedia page right now, and it has an interesting uh, comment uh, from uh, Groucho Marx in talking about Wood's Wood's politics. It says uh, Wood was a conservative in politics. He testified before the House on American Activities Committee in 1947. Groucho Marx, who worked with Wood on Night of the Opera and Day of the Races, once called Wood a quote fascist and was furious about Wood's racist comments about African Americans. There you go. Uh, allegedly Wood in frustration said you can't make an actor out of clay to which Groucho replied with his lightning wit and you can't make a director out of wood (laughs) (laughs) oh man Uh, that's fantastic I think that's where we gotta wrap it up right there I'm sorry Groucho wins the day once again that was totally awesome uh, thank you for that. I, I really appreciate it. Uh, with that, that's our discussion of the Pride of the Yankees. Um, we're going to take a little break here and listen to the Yankee Clipper. That's right.
So I don't I don't know if it's just that it's a slow news week or it's just that we did a show like nine days ago, but there isn't a whole lot in the news going on. I've got uh, we've got two kind of stories that uh, had little uh, uh, teacup teacup tempests over the last few <laughs> days. Uh, and the first is is a hilarious story of uh, uh, Variety, and I think Gawker was all outraged because. Uh, Apparently, Landmark Theaters is letting babies watch Lars von Trier's Nymphomaniac, and they think that is it is outrageous because that is a movie with a bunch of sex in it. And what the uh, what the actual deal is is like, uh, I think AMC actually started this years ago, which was to have like weekday matinee screenings where uh, parents could bring like their infant kids to the theater. And everyone would know that there would be babies there, so nobody would be complaining if, like, the babies are all, like, restless and talking. And they keep the lights up a little bit, and it's just kind of a, a way for for parents with, with young kids to get out of the house and, and watch a movie without, you know, being a, a, a nightmare distraction to other people in the audience. So I guess the the Landmark Theater in, in New York, the, the Sunshine, which I, I think our friend Nathan still works on. I'm not sure. Oh yeah, yeah. Uh, one of their one of their showings was was going to be *Nymphomaniac*, which is like an NC-17 movie, and apparently this this outraged somebody at Variety. So there was a, <laughs> like a little wave of of stories and and talk about this on Twitter, and it's just the dumbest thing in the world. Well, I have my theory, which I I told you earlier. My theory is, you know, it's for Nymphomaniac Part 1. And what they're doing, this is a really smart business strategy, is they're showing the kids Part 1, and they're going to be so hooked that they're going to have to pay to see Volume 2. Like, they're they're not going to be able to, you know, go through life without having seen Part 2 of Nymphomaniac. (laughs) <laughs> yeah, and, and, and my theory was that it doesn't really matter because, because babies know that Lars von Trier is a fraud, so they're not going to pay attention <laughs> anyway. <coughs> and the, uh, the other really kind of stupid story of the week was there was a, a, a teaser dropped for the new uh, Peanuts movie that's coming out that is, uh, it's like a minute long and it's uh, CGI. It's a computer and 3D CGI animated Peanuts movie. And people are outraged at this desecration of Charles Schultz's 2D art. And, and what did you, you watched it just before we, uh, we started recording here. What, were you similarly outraged at this uh, crime against uh, humanity? I actually think the animation looks uh, pretty cool. Um, 
you know, uh, it, it, it adapts, you know, it doesn't automatically just transform them into the generic DreamWorks looking, you know, or like the Mr. Peabody Sherman look or something, that's, uh, you know, the new stuff. Um, so it still retains the f- kind of feel to the, the Peanuts thing. It's a very short trailer. The thing that annoyed me about it, um, I really didn't like the, the riff on 2001, A Space Odyssey that opens it up. Uh, I was like, oh, this is stupid. And it turns out to be, you know, it's like dawn over uh, a, a planet, but it turns out to be Charlie Brown's head. Uh, I didn't like that, but um, you know, yeah, that, I'm, that was that was kind of dumb. That was kind of dumb, and that you know, kind of gives me, you know, I mean, it's a super short tra- trailer, um, but that kind of gives me pause for what they think they're going to do with the film. But you know, I, I think Paul Feig is is uh, at least producing this, and you know. Uh, I like Paul Feig. Uh, yeah, Paul Feig and uh, and Craig Schultz, uh, one of uh, one of Charles's kids, and uh, Craig was heavily involved in the in the last Peanuts feature that came out a couple of years ago that I I really like a lot. Like as a a, a, a very huge Peanuts fan, we are a, a Peanuts obsessed household here. Um, you yes, and I, I think I need to stress, and I I know <laughs> before on the show, but. Uh, Anybody listening, they're kind of crazy over there at the Gilman household. I mean, they got a room that's painted like Charlie Brown's shirt. It's got the it's got the uh, you know zigzag pattern and stuff. Uh, and Sean's wife, who, for all intents and purposes, in any other aspect of her life, is a is a you know intelligent uh, you know woman that you know has wonderful taste and i'm not just dis- i'm not dismissing peanuts or whatever um yeah, you better not be <laughs> i'm not you know well, this will be the end of the george sanders show <laughs> but but seeing that i can kind of see how she could handle living with you i yeah. you know see- seeing her obsession with peanuts i'm like okay i get it i i could i, I figured out your relationship now <laughs> you're both insane <laughs> yeah, well, I, I'm also a, a huge Peanuts fan, and, and one of the ways I, I first in, endeared myself to her was by asking her a Peanuts trivia question, which she could not answer. Oh, and what was that? Uh, it was, where did Snoopy com- uh, attempt to compete for the arm wrestling championship? Uh, France? Mm, pe- <laughs> Petaluma. Petaluma? Petaluma. I've been to Petaluma. There's a, there was a whole series of strips about it. It's like uh, Snoopy goes around and he bests all of the the kids in in arm wrestling. Like he bests Lucy. Lucy had been the the previous champion, and then he goes all the way to like the the national arm wrestling championships, and it's like a running story for like several several days, a couple weeks even. And every time Charlie Brown mentions where where it's being held, he says it's in Petaluma, and then you get like a little uh, uh, Snoopy dialogue box where it says Petaluma. Which he just thinks is like a weird word or something, I guess, and it's like this running joke all through it. So it's just something that always stuck in my head. Eventually, he and, gets there and he isn't allowed to compete because he doesn't have a thumb. And then that woman <laughs> said to herself, "I would like to settle down and have children with this man." Yeah. And there we are now. Yep, it's that's, a lovely story. That's uh, it's one of history's <laughs> great romances. <laughs> You're like Lou Gehrig and uh, Teresa Wright. <laughs> anyway, the the last Peanuts feature, uh, Happiness is a Warm Blanket, Charlie Brown, which came out in uh, like 2011, I think, 2010. Uh, 
is a is really interesting movie. In a lot of ways, it harkens back to to the very earliest strips. It actually includes a, an animated version of the very first ever Peanuts strip, and and it does that while uh, integrating the old style of animation of like the 1960s TV specials that you know everyone loves with kind of more modern hand-drawn animation techniques like i don't think it was hand-drawn i think it was like computer but it wasn't like cgi 3d computer animation um there's like there's like pov shots and there's there's overhead cameras it's not all on like the flat 2d plane like the you know like the great pumpkin or or charlie brown christmas specials so it 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 integrates these these new techniques into the the traditional Charles Schultz kind of aesthetic in a really clever and and effective way, I thought. And and when I saw that that Craig was also going to be involved in this in this new movie, I, I felt much better about it because like he's he's somebody who I think very much honors the you know his father's aesthetic ideals, and so I don't think he's going to complete, create a completely bastardized version which given like the the hair pulling and 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 anguished cries on and tweets that that accompanied the uh, the appearance of this of this teaser the other day uh, i think people are are really overreacting and i would well, I, you very know, I, much recommend to to any peanuts fan to see happiness is a warm blanket charlie brown i, I think it's the third best peanuts movie after mm. after the great pumpkin and, and charlie brown christmas yeah, I should check it out. I've seen it come through the library. Um, yeah, it's funny that people can get so up in arms about things. You know, like, how do people feel about Peanuts, you know, shilling everything from, you know, what was it, MetLife or whatever they do to, you know, I mean... Yeah, that was know. that was one of the, the common counter-arguments against the, uh, the Peanuts is selling out kind of thing i mean they've been selling out since forever i mean it's not a new thing like you know just deal with it um i'm okay with it you know i mean i'm not like i said i'm not the hugest peanuts fan i'm not you know i I enjoyed the the strips and stuff and the the early movies are good um you know if i'll probably catch up to the movie sometime yeah you know i won't i won't i won't be angry unless the movie's terrible you know if i watch the movie and it sucks then and and the teaser pissed. doesn't really tell you anything about the movie. It's it's just a, a generic teaser. It's not like it doesn't contain any actual shots from the film. And it could be from anything. Like I'm pretty sure the Simpsons movie had pretty much the exact same teaser. Oh yeah. And uh, I I thought that was a, a good movie too. I think the Simpsons is amazing. I think it's really <laughs> awesome. I should rewatch that. Uh, well, let's stop talking about things that you know don't exist yet and talk about some things that do. Uh, Sean. You've been watching a lot of movies. What you been watching? Uh, I've been watching a lot of movies. I've been watching a lot of musicals, uh, but I don't want to talk about those. Uh, I've been watching some Choi Hark movies, but I don't want to talk about those. The one I want to talk about is uh, is uh, Chai Ming Liang's latest film. It's a it's an hour long movie about his, a guy walking really really slowly through Marseille. Sounds awesome. It it really is, and it's. Uh, it's kind of it's kind of a sequel to a short that he released a couple of years ago called called Walker, which uh, in which uh, Lee Kang Shang, who is the the star of all of of Chai's films, uh, is is dressed as a Buddhist monk and he's walking through uh, Taipei. I think uh, I think Walker is uh, really slowly as like some kind of 
you know, we assume it's like some kind of uh, spiritual, like penance kind of thing, like painfully slow. And there's these long shots of him just walking. And everyone in, in the city is just going on about their lives. Sometimes they actually stop and like look at the camera crew. Sometimes they look at the monk. Um, but he just keeps going with his head down. And in, in Walker, he's like carrying something. And, and finally at the end, um, it, it turns out to be like a breakfast sandwich that, that he eats or, or some kind of bun or something. Uh, I like to think it's an egg McMuffin, but, uh, uh, anyway, uh, uh, the new one is, is called journey to the West and it, he is in Marseille and it also features, uh, Denis Levant, who you'll know from, from Holy Motors and various, uh, Leo's Carax movies, as well as, uh, Claire Denis Beau Travail. He's, he's one of the, uh, the, the great actors of, of the last 30 years or so. And He's in Mr. Lonely as well. He plays Charlie Chaplin in Mr. Lonely. Okay. Well, <laughs> I, don't, I don't know what that is. That's your favorite director, Harmony Kareen. Oh, God. <laughs> How dare you? How dare you? How dare you, sir? Uh, we said didn't bring Lars von Trier into it. Yeah. Well, I already talked about him. Uh, the film opens with like a 10-minute close-up shot of Denis Levant's face. And it just... You just stare at like his pores and like the wrinkles around his eyes and like his nose and and you you stare at it for so long that it, a it becomes comical and b his his face kind of transforms from a face into this kind of alien landscape which is uh kind of gives you a hint at like what the story such as it is of the film is going to be like it's a an adaptation of this very famous uh, very influential Chinese novel called Journey to the West, which was about the the monk who traveled to India from from China and brought back Buddhism, basically. It's like an origin story for Chinese Buddhism. And uh, what he brought back were like some, some Buddhist scriptures or something. And there's like a big martial arts novel that, that's built on it. And, and there's lots of films that, that come out of Journey to the West. Well, as the uh, as the film sees it, this this monk the, that Lee Kang Shang is playing is is the monk from Journey to the West, and part of the the landscape that he's walking across is Denis Levant's face. <laughs> That's terrifying. <laughs> and and it, it it's none of this is kind of explicitly said. It's all the because the movie is just a set of disconnected, discrete shots that, that some of them go on for a very long time. The the movie's only fifty three minutes long. Some of them are, are fairly short, like only a couple minutes. Um and no, it's just it's a really uh odd and, and obscure approach to narrative that that's somewhat uh uh clarified by by a postscript that that chai puts on the end of it and uh the the website that i saw it is streaming on like a french tv website and it uh it's accompanied by a little note from from chai that kind of uh explains it and and i wrote about the film and i think it's i think it's really interesting i think it's really worth watching and if you're if you're new to to chai i don't know it's really hard to find like a starting place with him because all of his feature films are kind of one connected story. So if you start with like the latest one, you're kind of missing like eight films of backstory. But I think if you're, if you're patient enough to kind of enjoy these, you know, you know, an hour of long shots of a guy walking really slowly, then, then you might really like this and it's available free streaming right now. And 
I'll put a, a link up on the on the uh, notes for the show, so you can uh, you can watch it. I look forward to that. That sounds really really cool. Yeah. Have you have you seen any of of Chai's films? I have not, um, but they they sound like they're right up my alley because I'm into slow. <laughs> I'm into slow. Let me just say that. Yeah, uh, one of one of my my wife's least favorite movie going experiences was was at a Chai Ming Long film that I I dragged her to at the, the Vancouver Film Festival. We went to see this one called Visage, which finds uh, Li Kang Sheng's character in in Paris making a movie, and uh, like Jean Pierre Liot is there in the forest reciting weird monologues, and the the model Letitia Costa has like a big role and. There's the scene where she spends like ten minutes putting black tape over a window, and uh, and uh, yeah, I almost did not have a wife to come home to after that one. <laughs> but, but then you played Linus and Lucy on a on the hotel piano, and she was just <laughs> in your arms again. <laughs> if only. Uh, cool. Well, I gotta check that stuff out. Um, Let's talk about our person of the week now, shall we? Mm-hmm. Um, it's it's the hundred and fourth birthday of uh, Akira Kurosawa, and as far as I know, he doesn't have anything to do with baseball. Um, does he have anything to do with baseball? I don't think so. I don't think so. I was trying to think. Uh, uh, Ozu, I think, was a, a baseball fan, but I don't recall Kurosawa ever having any kind of baseball scenes in his movies. He might have in one of the modern day ones. It'd be weird if you had it one of the samurai ones. Actually, I kind of I'd watch that samurai baseball. That'd be good. Uh, yeah, but you know, it's Kurosawa's birthday, so happy birthday uh, to one of the greatest directors of all time. Um, you know, it's a little hard to talk about Kurosawa in a way because he's he's such a figure, such a prominent person. Um, but we're foolish enough to try. <laughs> yeah, I feel I feel like we've talked about him at some point on the show before. I feel like we have two. That's why I asked you when we decided to do Person of the Week. Uh, had we not done him before, but you said no. So I don't, I don't think I don't think we have. But I feel we've talked about him at some point. Uh, did you have Seven Samurai on your your top ten of all time list on that episode that we did? I don't remember. I don't remember what we talked about last week. Yeah. <laughs> but you know, screw it. Like, yeah. uh, let's talk about him again because he's awesome. So there you go. Yeah. Um, I, so, I know I did. I did two other podcasts about Kurosawa of uh, the They Shot Pictures podcast. Um, if you want to listen to those, uh, no, no, <laughs> no, not really. I get enough view as it is. <laughs> He's great. Uh, Kurosawa was one of, I think, as he is for for many people, he was one of the the kind of uh, entry point directors to to foreign foreign film to kind of art cinema. The gateway drug, uh, yeah. He was, he was the weed. <laughs> Curry Kurosawa was the marijuana of uh, of auteurs. That's right. Uh, no, it was uh, it was really uh, Rashomon and then Yojimbo and Seven Samurai that kind of got me hooked on uh, not only like samurai movies but but Japanese movies, and then from there I went to like Fellini and Bergman and and all of the other the other greats, and so it's it's. It's hard to talk about him as as anything other than than a great director. What what about you? Yeah, same thing. I mean, you were actually uh, the person that 
gave me, you lent me Rashomon and Seven Samurai, I think, um, about 10 years ago. And uh, yeah, and that's that's kind of what got me started there um, with his stuff. And I, you know, I'm absolutely yeah, in accordance with you on on Kurosawa. And you know, I Seven Samurai is amazing. Um, I've seen it now. God, I don't know, at least a half dozen times. Um, there was a, a one year where I think I watched it like three times that year. I saw it at SIF. Um, and then at home a couple of times, and it it's it's good every time. <laughs> I mean, it really is. You know, the last time I saw it, I was thinking it gets, to myself, it gets faster every time. It's a three it and a half hour movie, and yeah, it so, just it flies by. It absolutely flies by. Um, and yeah, and I like you know what I like about Kurosawa. You know, I've I've kind of laid off of him um, for the last several years. Um, not because I got bored, but because I wanted to save some stuff for the future. You know, like I've seen the big, the big name stuff. You know, the the Yojimbo Sanjuro, Seven Samurai, uh, Ikiru, Stray Dog. You know, I, I could keep going. You know, I've seen like ten <coughs> or so films of his, but then um, I'm kind of saving some, like Redbeard and uh, some of the earlier stuff um, as well. For 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 a rainy day. Um, yeah, Red, Redbeard was one that I'd been saving for a long time. It was it was actually the first Criterion DVD I ever got. I, I got it for Christmas one year in it must have been like two thousand three, and uh, I never I never watched it until uh, until we did the podcast about him and, and decided to talk about that. So I I had to watch it. So now I, that was my reserve Kurosawa, and I don't have one anymore. Do you have like a an underrated? Kurosawa that you would recommend to somebody who is who has only seen like the big ones. Ooh, that's a good question. Um, I, I, it's hard for me to gauge underrated because, like, you know, hmm, like High and Low isn't as familiar, I guess, as um, maybe I'm maybe I'm wrong, but as as like Seven Samurai or Rashomon or something like that, um, and that's really good. But I feel like that one does get talked about a lot. Um, I really love Ron. Um, which maybe that one doesn't get talked about as much because it's a later film from the eighties. Um, I don't know. I, you know, I I, I, think, I don't. I have think like Ron a, doesn't get talked about as much as it should. Because Ron is freaking amazing. Like I, yeah. I love it. I I think it's. Um, I think it's not only one of his best. I don't know. I think it's one of his best movies, samurai or contemporary. I think it's one of the best Shakespeare adaptations you're going to get. And, uh, you know, Throne of Blood is great too, but I think Ron is better. Um, and it's, it's just so beautiful to look at. And, and just the colors in it are just mind boggling. Um, so I, yeah, I'd say Ron. I don't know. They're all they're all freaking awesome. This is this is what happens when you talk about Kurosawa. Is you're like, well, and then there's this movie that's good, and then there's that one, and then this. Oh, remember that one? You know. <laughs> but I mean, what are you gonna do? Uh, what about you? What, what's your what's your hidden? Uh, is it Hidden Fortress? No. Uh, which although I I like Hidden Fortress a lot. I do too. Um, uh, I actually have two kind of uh, more obscure picks, and they're two of his early films. Um, one is one that was one of the first ones I actually saw. It's uh, The Men Who Tread on the Tiger's Tail from, I think, 1945. I think it was shot, might have been shot like either right after the war ended or right at the tail end of the war. And it's it's very short. It's like barely over an hour long, and it's a, a dramatization of a 
of a, an old legend that was a, a famous play, uh, a story that had been told a lot about a general attempting to, uh, to cross a frontier in the middle of the Civil War. And uh, uh, he and his, his men are disguised as monks, and they're attempting to sneak past this guard who knows that the general is going to attempt to sneak past him disguised as a monk, and they have to kind of uh, uh, commit to this, uh, to this ruse. And it's, uh, I, it's just one of those movies that nobody ever talks about that I really love a lot. It, it's, it's a really interesting take on kind of uh, samurai codes and, and martial ideals of honor. And it's, it's very ambiguous in, you know, in, in how it deals with those, which is, which is unusual for a movie made under the auspices of the, the warlike Japanese regime. And I think it's actually kind of critical of that ideology, but nonetheless, it's, it's still got banned by the American occupying forces for, for a number of years, uh, because of it's, uh, the kind of, uh, hot ideological quality of it. Uh, the other one is is a very atypical for him, film for him in that its its main character is a woman, uh, and that's no regrets for a youth. And the woman is is Setsukohara, the the great star of uh, many films by by Ozu and and Mikio Naruse. And it's a uh, uh, she's uh, she falls in love with like a, an anti fascist revolutionary in the late thirties, and they have a, a romance, and then he gets like killed trying to fight the the militarist regime, and she ends up going back to his parents' uh, uh, farm out in the countryside, and kind of undergoing a, a spiritual renewal as she she learns to to work the land, and kind of suffers through the war years where uh, her and and her uh, her husband's politics is. Uh, are not thought of very well by the local community. All those, all those ones that I haven't seen, and those two in particular, um, intrigue me so much just because their titles are so amazing. Yeah, like I love those titles. He, um, he was he was great at titles, or or the whoever you know picked the English translations of his titles. Yeah, really, really, really cool. Yeah. Um, the bad sleep well, you know, stuff like that. Yeah, I have something to confess. Uh, unfortunately, uh, while you were talking about those two films, I said to myself, you know, this sounds eerily familiar to me. Yeah. Uh, and so I went to uh, the George Sanders Show website, and uh, Akira Kurosawa was our person of the week on episode 14 when we talked about both versions of Harakiri. <laughs> so I think we've actually had this exact discussion before back in September. <laughs> huh? Well, I'm I'm sure we didn't say you know exactly the same thing. So <laughs> it sounded really. Funny. You know, if you want if you want to find out, go ahead and and go download that Harakiri episode. Uh, <laughs> that's that's a good episode. We talk about Masaki Kobayashi's film and then uh, Takashi Miike's remake of it. That, those are some interesting movies. That's I'm I'm sure we had lots of interesting things to say about Akira Kurosawa in September that are different than the things we just said. Well, and apparently, reading the little recap here, uh, we also talk about Ron Howard on that episode. So hey. it sounds like it sounds like a golden episode. Yeah. <laughs> so yeah, you know, we'll do better next time. 
<laughs> but thanks for listening to it a second time, people. Um, we really like Akira Kurosawa. We do. We really do. I mean, if if we're going to talk about anybody twice on the show um, and highlight them, it's going to be that guy. So um, just deal with it. Yeah. So uh, I think I think what this is indicating is that it is time for a seventh inning stretch. Yes. So uh, I hope everybody out there knows what happens during the seventh inning stretch. Um, and if you don't, basically, you need to be standing. You need to take your hat off. Um, if you're in a car, you need to stand too. I don't care. I don't want that to stop you. Um, and I'm going to try and get through this without screwing it up. But I am not going to achieve that. So bear with me here, ladies and gentlemen. Uh, please rise for our national anthem. Wait. <laughs> this should be our national anthem. All right, here we go. Thank you. I feel, uh, I feel rejuvenated. Don't you? I feel I feel good. I feel good going into this, you know, the, the final innings of this game here. Uh, did I ever tell you a story about uh, <laughs> my older brother's wedding? He got married uh, in wine country, because uh, that's the kind of guy that he is. Um, <laughs> a, I, it was almost almost ten years ago now. And uh, it was, you know, it was a it was a small ceremony in the backyard of, of um his now, what do you call it, father-in-law. Um, and anyway, he wanted to have everybody in the family do something at the wedding, you know. And uh, he tasked me with playing guitar um, while they walked down the aisle, and uh, which is just a bad idea. It's just a real bad idea. So um, I was playing. First of all, I was what I was playing, I was playing this like a... Um, kind of finger-picking folk kind of thing, which is a nice little thing to play. But there was some snag with the, the bride. Some, like, I, I forget what was happening, but like one of the bridesmaids wasn't there or something. And so I started when I got the nod, and I started to play this folk thing, and everybody was sitting there. And I'm not really good at the guitar. Um, <laughs> and so I was really concentrating really hard, but nobody was walking down the aisle. So I kept like playing this repetitive thing. For it felt like a couple of minutes, you know, and I'm like, well, I can't stop now. But it was like, <laughs> it was just going on for a really long time, and everybody's looking at me, and I'm like, I don't know, I don't know what's going on here. Uh, finally, she walks down the aisle. They do the whole thing, and I'm playing an acoustic guitar that's plugged into an amplifier, um, and I, I set the guitar down during the ceremony, and they have the ceremony, and it was they had a it was a Jewish wedding. Uh, and so at the end, they, uh, you know, they broke the glass and said, Mazel Tov. And uh, <laughs> I didn't turn off the guitar. <laughs> and so the, the, <laughs> the, the crowd of people, you know, a hundred or so people yelling, Mazel Tov, uh, f- fed back into the acoustic guitar, which came out of the speaker. And so 
Everybody goes, Mazel Tov! And then the most shrill, piercing, shrieking feedback came out of the guitar. And all, everybody there in their tuxes turn and look at me. And I'm just like, beat red, like, I've just ruined your wedding. So that's, that's, that's why you don't hire me for any, any kind of thing like that. But anyway, on with the show. Let's talk about baseball movies, shall we? Because baseball, here's the thing about baseball. I was thinking about this earlier in the week. It's the sport that lends itself, at least tra- tra- traditionally, to, to film. Like, there are more movies about baseball, or at least in my mind, you know, great movies about baseball, than there are for any other sport. Like, can you name a great football movie? Uh, the, the closest is probably Robert Aldrich says The Long- Longest Yard. And I don't know if that is really a great movie. Yeah. I, you know, the only thing I can think of is uh, Horse Feathers from the Marx Brothers. But that's not really a football movie. It's a college movie that has a football game at the end. The, the Friday Night Lights TV series is, is really great. And, and the movies is pretty good, too. Yeah. But, but the, the saying still stands. I mean, there, there's... Oh, d- definitely. Baseball is, is easily the most cinematic of, of sports. Right. So... If you had to pick one movie to show somebody, I don't know, maybe like sell them on, on what's so great about baseball or, or what have you, what film would you pick? That's a, that's a tough one. It's like somebody has never seen baseball before. Well, I don't know. I was just trying. What's your cinema? I mean, I could sell it either way. But uh, yeah, I mean, that's a, that's a tough one. And I'll tell you, the answer's not uh, the goofy short How to Play Baseball, because I just rewatched that, and uh, it's not that good. No, that was actually uh, specifically commissioned for to play in front of Pride of the Yankees. That is true. It is. And, and they rushed the production um, of it, and I, it kind of shows. I mean, yeah, I don't, I'm not going to talk about that, because I, I think I talked about it last week, where I was, I'm watching all these goofy shorts. But anywho. Yeah, the, the uh, baseball Buzz Bunny short is, is really great. The one where he's like a he's a, a pitcher and he plays all of the other positions as well. That's right. That, that That's is a, really that good. Is a great one. Uh, I have the uh, I have two of the Looney Tunes box sets at home right now, and I should see if that's on one of them because uh, I love me some Bugs Bunny. Let me tell you. Uh, so there the the nineteen eighties was a great year for or a great decade for baseball movies, and and there were so many, and I I. I actually really love them all. I know there there are a few that you don't like, but but The Natural and Major League and Eight Men Out and Field of Dreams and and Bull Durham. I love I love all of those movies. I think they're all just fantastic both for for baseball and just and just as movies. Like like some of them have certain weaknesses, but if I had to pick like the essential baseball movie, I I think I'd go with The Bad News Bears. That's a good pick. Which is it's uh, it's about little league. It's not about major league baseball, and it's it's a, a very nineteen seventies kind of view of sports, where like the the manager is is Walter Matthau as uh, this kind of drunken and and totally apathetic guy who's like forced into managing this little league team, and eventually he comes around and tries to win, but he doesn't try too hard, and it's got what uh, Tatum O'Neill and. Uh, that other guy, <laughs> uh, who was in The Watchmen, uh, Jackie Earl Haley, and 
Yeah, it's it's a very kind of very scruffy New Hollywood 1976 movie. And it, it has just... Baseball movies tend to build up to these, these fantastic endings, like, you know, uh, Robert Redford hitting a home run in, to win the pennant, or uh, uh, Kevin Costner playing catch with his dad, or something like that. Uh, I love the ending of The Bad News Bears, where... Uh, they they don't win like like Rocky they don't win but they earn the respect of their opponent the this this team that's been talking down to them through throughout the whole season the the Yankees of course and, of course uh, and uh, so the 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 Bears get their their second place trophy and and the Yankees come up to them and they're like hey you guys you guys are all right it's like uh, like in the at the end of Karate Kid like you're all right Luso and the and uh, the Bears. Uh, take the trophy and they throw it at the Yankees and say, Hey Yankees, you can take this trophy and shove it up your ass. <laughs> yeah. It's a, it's a great, fil- it's, it's, it's a good film. I, I wouldn't, I, I don't love it as much. Um, but I do think it's, it's definitely worth a watch. Um, and I do, I do like how bitter it is and how like, it's not a movie you would ever see like for kids um, like nowadays or whatever, like, you know, it, it's kind of loud. Not at all. Like, no, really (laughs) bad. Wouldn't be allowed to watch it. Yeah. Really bad language. Um, You know, obviously Matthau's character is, uh, you know, not a role model. Um, And I was actually pleasantly surprised of uh, Richard Linklater's remake of it, which is not, you know, it's not amazing either, but it actually retains a lot of that kind of, harshness to it um you know with billy bob thornton and uh you know the the language is still there and uh you know it's definitely a a watered down effort but it's it's it still has a little bite to it um but yeah i love me some walter matthau so you know it's hard to go wrong there yeah the Um, the more the more walter matthau movies i watch the more i'm convinced that he is he's one of the the all-time greats oh yeah Oh, easily. Yeah, he's fantastic. Uh, my my pick is uh, it's a little bit of a nostalgia pick because it's one I, I watched uh, many, many, many times uh, growing up, and uh, it's uh, Penny Marshall's A League of Their Own, yeah. which uh, I I think is I haven't seen it in at least it's probably been about fifteen years now, um, but gosh. That movie is so much fun. It's got such a great cast, um, and it you know it if for people that haven't heard of it, you know it's it's about um, the women's the baseball. All American Girls Professional Baseball League. Thank you, Sean. Uh, <laughs> that that you know cropped up during the war as 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 our as our boys were off fighting or whatever. Um, and it's def- it's 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 a who's who you know of of you know early nineties. Uh, you know, stars. It's got Gina Davis. It's got Lori Petty, who we we love, uh, as we spoke of on Point Break. Uh, <laughs> um, it's it's got a Madonna's Madonna, in there. Rosie yeah. O'Donnell. R- Rosie O'Donnell. Tom um, Hanks. Quite a, yeah, uh, John Lovitz, oh, ladies yeah. and gentlemen, John Lovitz. Um, <laughs> but it's a re- <laughs> but it's a really fun movie um, that's really sweet. But it, you know, it also has uh, what's good about this movie, and I don't want to. This is going to sound, you know, annoying because it's about a women's team. But uh, and I'm going to talk about a guy all of a sudden. But um, Tom Hanks's performance is really interesting here because he he's kind of a jerk, you know, and you don't get to see that very often. 
out of Tom Hanks. He plays a drunk, you know, and he like you know urinates in in inappropriate places and stuff. Um, As Tom Hanks will, he he tends to do that, you know. But uh, but no, it's a, it's a really sweet, charming movie that I do really want to uh, revisit one of these days. Um, so League of Their Own, it's, I, I, it's, I would say it's definitely Penny Marshall's best movie. Yeah, that's kind of a backhanded compliment, but. Um, she actually, That's okay. She actually really didn't direct that many movies. I'm looking at her Wikipedia page, and there's only seven. Yeah. And I've seen the first four, and they're all okay. You ever see Jumpin' Jack Flash with Whoopi Goldberg? No, I. but the cover of it is like burned in my brain from seeing it in video stores uh, like my whole life. Yeah, um, that, that is not a good movie. <laughs> I'm not surprised. Um, but yeah, you know. You know, yeah, yeah. League, yeah. Of, League of Their Own is good. League of Their Own, yeah, I like that one. <laughs> good. <laughs> um, well, with that, let's talk about uh, a film that came out the same year as the Bad News Bears, and it's also not... about a league that is not a major league. That is true. Uh, it's uh, here's a clip uh, of Richard Pryor, uh, co-star of the Bingo Long Traveling All Stars and Motor Kings. job as treasurer. Ain't no reason you can't be the team statistician. I mean, if you do good, I'll tell Bingo. We'll start with something easy, like batting averages. See, you take the number of times a man been at bat, and you divide that by the number of times a man got a hit. Like me, I've been at bat a uh, hundred times. I got 25 hits. That's simple, right? 25 going a hundred four times. Gives me a batting average of four. That's wrong. That ain't no way to do that. What you got to do is the number of times a man's been at bat and got a hit. Divide that by the number of times he swung. See, I've been at bat a lot, and I swung a lot. Let me see. 75 into 100? No. That would give me a batting average of two. <laughs> I couldn't have a batting average of two. Nobody could have a batting average that bad. Could it? All right, so the Bingo Long Traveling All-Stars and Motor Kings is about a, a kind of a barnstorming team of Negro League baseball players who revolt from their owner who is, is very harsh and, and uh, explicitly uh, compared to a slave master. And they, they kind of form their own team and they travel around to small cities and attempt to, to make it on their own and find some degree of freedom, all set in 1939. 39 on the evil world war two and not coincidentally i don't think right around the same time as the end of pride of the yankees and when when we talk about pride of the yankees i talk about it as as kind of exemplifying the certain ideal of american heroism and it it seems to me that that bingo long exemplifies the other version of american heroism the 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 other side of the the really square uh, you know, straightforward white bread, uh, pun intended, uh, version <laughs> of America versus the, uh, 
you know the the underclass, the the exploited workers, the 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 black players who aren't allowed to play against the Yankees in in Major League Baseball, and the way that they form you know a community of their own, an organization of their own, and they fight back in in their own way against these these kind of power structures, and that that too is a specifically American kind of heroism. So, I thought I thought this was a, a really really great movie. I liked it a lot. What, what did you think? I had a lot, I had a lot of fun with this movie. Um, I really did. Um, it, it's, uh, it's just a, it's just a joy to watch. Like it, like this is so much more fun than the pride of the Yankees. You know, everybody on screen is having fun. Um, you know, their, their act as it were is really fun. Um, the performances are really, are great. And, uh, yeah, it, it's 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 a it's an infectious, goofy kind of movie that um, I was really on board with. Um, it, it took a little getting into because the beginning of the film, it, it has one too many um, kind of montages set to ragtime where the they're like parading down the street or something, and it kind of did that a few times, and I was getting a little tedious. But um, but by the second half of this thing. Um, I was really caught up in it and uh, having quite a blast. And the the cast here is is uh, really what does it for for me. Um, you know, Billy D. Williams uh, stars as as Bingo Long, this uh, pitcher who is uh, based on uh, real life pitcher Satchel Paige, right? Who's uh, one of one of the greatest pitchers of all time, and who actually did eventually play in the major leagues, but when he was very very old. Yeah, when he was at the end of his career and, and not able to, you know, show his best stuff. But, um, yeah, so he, he, he creates this group, um, including uh, James Earl Jones, who's kind of the, the second man here. He's the catcher. Um, and he's, he's based on Josh Gibson, who's, uh, who was, was also a catcher and is uh, one of the, the greatest power hitters in, in baseball history. He, he was rivaled, um, rumored to have hit more home runs than Babe Ruth, but, but nobody really knows for sure because Negro lead statistics were, were very hard to find. Right. Um, and I think James Earl Jones is, is the heart of this movie. And I think he, I mean, I think everybody here is pretty good. Um, and we'll get to some of the other people here in a second. But um, for me, James Earl Jones kind of owns this. Um, he's, yeah, I, I agree. He's so good in this movie. Um, he he's kind of got a temper, like he's kind of a you know hard edged at times. He's he's the one that kind of um, brings Bingo down to earth at times, but he also supports him on his idea, you know, of starting this kind of you know um, player run group, ragtag group of. of um, you know, well, he's he's much smarter than than certainly any any black character is allowed to be in 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 Hollywood studio films of the of the 30s or 40s. Like he he he's very well read. He's very well spoken. He's the one who who kind of initiates the idea of the workers uh, taking over the the means of production, which inspires uh, Bingo Long to start his own team. Like he's he's he is well read and. That that knowledge doesn't really get him anywhere because because of of segregation and because of American society. So he, it seems to me that he kind of copes with this existential dilemma that he faces as a black man in America by by drinking and 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 screwing around with women and playing baseball. 
And that's just a, a fascinating combination to me. And, and, and Jones brings out all sides of, of this character. He's, he's really, really fantastic. Um, my favorite, my favorite scene with him and, and one of my favorite lines in the movie is, uh, the, uh, the the players are expected to clown around and and part of that is uh just a a kind of looser culture that they have uh at, in the negro leagues and just with the more flamboyant players like like bingo long they're they're you know they're goofing off they do have like a little like harlem globetrotters type type routine but on on a baseball diamond with like an oversized bat and and like a, a ball that that disappears and stuff like that. And they try to get uh, Jones to, to play along with it in order to diffuse this awkward situation where they're playing a white team in the deep South and, and the white fans look like they want to lynch them. Right. And, and it, 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 it does get, you know, it, it, to butt in here for a second, it does get, you know, this is a comedy and it's a lot of fun, but this, this moment, and there are a couple other moments in the movie where it does get kind of tense. You know, yeah. you actually do feel that kind of, you know, um, violence presence yeah that yeah so but yeah continue uh and so the, the they want to get jones to to play along but he he's too dignified for that and 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 the line he uses he is that he's not going to shine for any white people yeah and it's it's one thing for him to goof off and joke around among other black people but being the clown is this kind of characterization of a black man that is, is really stereotypical and it's really demeaning. And he does not want to play into that. He doesn't want to play down in front of the white folks. And, you know, that's, it's very, it's uh, it's an odd nuance for a baseball movie because you can take Bingo Long as a kind of like step and fetch it type character as he's goofing off for the entertainment of the white people and kind of emasculating himself. And, and Jones, you know, says he's not going to go along with that. He doesn't, he doesn't want to do that. But what makes, yeah, I agree. But what makes his character even more interesting is that, or uh, more lovable is that he, he does that. Um, and then bingo still plays a trick on him, mm-hmm. but Jones is, w- is willing to, you know, admit that you know he got got and that you know he 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 laughs it off and thinks it's pretty funny too you know he's not just like a a sourpuss or anything like he has his fun too you know? yeah like the, uh, the the movie isn't isn't polemic one way or the other like it it, right. it, it treats these complicated issues of, of representation and of the role of, of black people in american film and in baseball uh in in a very you know subtle way and and it's really really interesting yeah i it really is um and Jones has two of my favorite lines in the movie that are, are not the one that you mentioned uh, early in the film. He um, he's talking about uh, W. E. B. Du Bois, <laughs> Du Bois, um, and he uh, you know he's no one around him knows what he's talking about. And you know, like you said, when he's talking about the workers and um, taking over the means of production and stuff. Um, and he just casually, flippantly says, "Try reading a book sometime," you know. <laughs> and just in in James Earl Jones's like you know famous voice it sounds really wonderful um and then later in the film and this is going to set up talking about another character in the film here um he's he's, he has the great line i always knew that boy's aryan proclivities would get his ass in the cooker and i I actually rewound and and got that so i could write it down (laughs) it's such a great line with such a great delivery um and uh and he's talking about Richard Pryor, who uh, is in this movie 
um, for a bit. He disappears for a stretch, but uh, he plays um, another another yeah, player he, on the he team. He disappears the because something horrifying happens to him. Oh yeah, something really. I mean, it's surprising that the thing happens to him, um, and that it happens to Richard Pryor. You yeah. know what I mean? Like, like you you can see maybe like. Uh, Someone with more, I don't know, dramatic, you know, gravitas or something playing a scene of, of being tortured basically is me uh, spoiling it for you. But um, but it happens to Richard Pryor, who's like the funniest guy. Um, yeah, he's like the, the, the comic relief through the film. Like they have him playing right field because he's not really all that good. And, and like his running joke is that he's, uh, he's trying to pose as uh, Hispanic. So he can, he can go to so he can go to Cuba and then get called up to the major leagues because because Cubans are allowed to play in in the major leagues because they're not considered black they're considered Hispanic and he 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 runs that joke for so long and it pays off so well like he he does such a great job with it like I was just laughing my ass off with him uh, the best line is when he's trying to trying to pick up this woman in a bar. And he's speaking his really bad Spanish to her, and he says "Buenos knockers, señor." Buenos knockers <laughs> to this woman. <laughs> oh, um, and he's yeah, he is so funny. And then the clip that we played is him trying to figure out how to calculate his batting average, and, and it comes up a couple of times in the movie. But uh, <laughs> I'm pretty sure he never figured it out. <laughs> <laughs> oh man. Um so he's really great. But you're right. It does have this this mixture of um uh you know, really fun goofiness to it. But then these these scenes of of shocking violence. Um and what's interesting too is that the violence um you might expect the retaliation to come from white folk, um, you know, and, and there are the scenes where you fear like a lynching or, or, you know, some sort of violence, but it's coming from, uh, this owner of, of the, the team that, um, bingo defects from, um, what's his name? His name is, uh, uh Sally Potter. S- Sal- yeah. Sally Potter. Um, he's the owner of one of the Negro league teams that, um, has kind of been shafting his his employees, as it were, you know, cutting their pay and and doing these really mean, cruel things. And uh, he's the one that kind of is following them as they travel through the Midwest. And he, you know, his goons uh, steal their money. They um, they get you know their games you know canceled, and they attack um, <laughs> their players. And it's and it's pretty brutal stuff. Yeah, there, there's a, there's you know a couple of of ways you can read that. You can read it as like a, a straight capitalist thing about the owners just being the worst. And and this movie came out in 1976, which is at the the height of the players' movement, is like the start of free agency and and antitrust suits against Major League Baseball. So there's there's very much a demonization of the owners in favor of the players. But you can also read it in in terms of like a a, a slave narrative type story where. Uh, where the owner is like the 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 house slave that that is uh lording over the the field slaves like the the Samuel L. Jackson character in Django Unchained is is almost worse than the white owners. Oh yeah. So there's you know there's a couple different ways you can you can read that but either way he's he's the worst. He, he's a bad guy. Yeah. <laughs> um 
yeah, yeah. A, a lot of the the you know like the the players here are are based on on some real players like like Josh Gibson and Satchel Page and there's a, a a young player that that joins up with them that's that's kind of loosely based on on Willie Mays and uh, and he ends up you know turning into a, a Jackie Robinson type figure as he uh, at the end of the film he gets signed to uh, to the Brooklyn Dodgers to like go play in the minor leagues and eventually break the the color barrier. So it, it uh, the film compresses a lot of Negro League history into like this one season because the the Negro Leagues went on for for thirty years in in various incarnations and there were you know more or less kind of organized uh, structures and teams were going bankrupt all the time and there were like barnstorming teams just like the the bingalong uh, teams did. There were teams in Cuba, there were teams in, in Mexico. There was this whole kind of under undercurrent of baseball that was not Major League Baseball or like the affiliated uh, all-white leagues. We were going throughout the first half of the 20th century. And and this movie kind of condenses all of that into this one little story. And it and it ends with the you know like the hope of the future of baseball becoming desegregated, which didn't actually happen until like eight years after the events of this film are supposed to take place. But I I think it's 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 kind of cool how the movie ends that way. Because it's it's a very bittersweet moment. Because on the it one really hand, is. it's it's triumphant that you know they're actually going to get allowed to compete on the highest level uh, finally. Uh, but on the other hand, it means the end of the Negro Leagues, and and James Earl Jones sees that, and and uh, and Billy D. Williams uh, doesn't quite like he, yeah. he still thinks they'll be able to go on. But but it's it's it is the end of a specific, uh, a very specific culture and a very specific kind of American phenomenon. Yeah, and. You're right. I mean, that that once again shows how um, interesting and and you know um, expansive Billy. I mean, uh, James Earl Jones's uh, character is that he can you know because Billy D. Williams is kind of seeing it just from his perspective and, and how now they you know they can be accepted as as a legitimate team within their own leagues and stuff. But then uh, the reality is is that as uh, James Earl Jones says is that no one's going to come to see them anymore if you know the best players on their teams can now play you know with the white guys and you know the the major leagues and uh, lo and behold that is what happened you know eventually. Um, let me ask you about Billy D. Williams because we when I was when I mentioned this uh, on the end of the last episode, um, you said you hadn't really seen much beyond Star Wars. Um, yeah, and I haven't. We, we decided that he was in uh, the Tim Burton Batman movie, right? He and was, that was like the only other place we'd seen him. So, what do you think of him here when he's not playing Lando Calrissian? I I thought he was fantastic. I I he was everything you want a movie star to be. He's he's uh, he's charming. He's he's charismatic. He's he's funny. He's yeah. He's great. Yeah, I I really liked him here too. I I. I um, you can see why he was a big star. Um, <laughs> you know, like um, he, you know, he has this scene that happens actually a, a number of times throughout the film um, where he's kind of shouting the. It's basically the title of the movie, but also the name of their their team. Um, and 
he's he he's so full of uh, exuberance and and joy and he's got this thousand watt smile you know his teeth are just you know gleaming and and he's throwing his arms out there and he's like the bingo long traveling all star and and you kind of get wrapped up in it like he really uh, he really does a good job of it. Um, yeah, yeah, yeah. He he and 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 James Earl Jones were just are just phenomenal, and they make a, a great pair. And yeah, I I I really love this movie, and <laughs> uh, it it was one that I that I had never seen before, and I'm I'm really glad I got to watch it. And it it deserves to be you know ranked along with all of those other baseball movies that that I mentioned earlier, like all of those great films of the, of the '80s. This is as good as any of them, if if not better. I agree. I, I I had never heard of this movie until you suggested it for the show, and uh, that just goes to show: uh, a, I live under a rock, and b, um, that this doesn't have that recognition. You don't you don't see it in clip shows. You don't see it, you know, being talked about. And I think that's a real shame because um, I think this is up there with you know Eight Men Out or um, you know any of those movies that you mentioned earlier. This is a lot of fun, and I can see myself revisiting this down the line. Um, even if it's just to see uh, Richard Pryor, you know, <laughs> trying to calculate that batting average, but uh, yeah, it's a it's a lot of fun. Yeah, and it's uh, it's uh, it's available. It's on instant Netflix right now. You can stop listening to this and and go watch that movie if you if you haven't seen it. Yeah, it's also available uh, on Amazon Instant for just a couple of bucks too. So if you if you don't have that, oh, try we, it we, sh- we should mention the the director uh, John Badham. Uh, this was his his first feature film, I believe, and his uh, his follow up is a bit more famous. It's uh, Saturday Night Fever from the next year. Yeah, uh, uh, he he also directed War Games, which was which is one of my favorite uh, thrillers of of the nineteen eighties, and then of course the classic Short, Short Circuit. Circuit. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> as um, well as a uh, Stakeout and another Stakeout, and uh, he did Bird on a Wire with uh, Mel Gibson and Goldie Hawn, which is one of the worst movies I've ever seen. <laughs> and it, it may possibly be topped by uh, by the Hard Way from 1991, which starred Michael J. Fox and James Woods. Ooh, that's a winner. Well, he also did Nick of Time, which is that the the Johnny Depp movie? Ooh, yeah, that movie is terrible too. <laughs> well, he's still around. He's uh, he's directing a lot of TV now, but uh, you know, this is a great kickoff. Uh, for a career, I mean, I, he did a lot of TV before he did this as well. So, um, but uh, this is this is a solid solid film. So. Yeah, this is this is John Badham's best film by far. <laughs> I, I feel confident in saying that. <laughs> well, that's good. Uh, well, that's our discussion of that. Um, what are we going to hear now? Something fun? Uh, Center field from John Fogerty. This is one of the the iconic music videos of the '80s. It was just the song played a bunch over a bunch of uh, bloopers of, uh, of baseball games from like the '70s and '80s, and it, it played all the time on MTV, and it's always hilarious.
Well, that's it for our show this week. Uh, next time on the show, we're going to be discussing, tying in with the screening of Orson Welles's uh, the Magnificent Ambersons that's coming to the Grand Illusion Theater in Seattle. We'll be discussing that film, as well as uh, Zhazhenka's platform from the year 2000. Um, if you are in L.A.-ish, Santa Monica, I think, actually, um, at the American Cinematheque uh, Aero Theater, uh, on the 28th of this month, they're showing, tying in with... Uh, the 100th anniversary of Charlie Chaplin's Little Tramp debuting on the screen. They're going to be running a bunch of Chaplin shorts, um, including Kid Otter Races in Venice, uh, which is the first one, first appearance. Um, I don't. I actually think the Tramp was in a, a Mabel Norman short before that, but it didn't come out until after. Um, and then also some other classic uh, Chaplin shorts uh, like Easy Street and The Vagabond. So that sounds like an awesome time at the movies. Um, so go see that. Yeah, I love Kid Auto Races at Venice. That's it's uh, a really, really uh, interesting kind of meta movie for for nineteen twelve or whenever it was that it came out nineteen fifteen. Yeah, it's really it's really kind of cool, um, <laughs> just interacting with the camera and stuff. It's it's yeah. it's pretty fun. That's neat. Uh, my my pick for this week doesn't isn't really like a repertory. There there are two films from two thousand thirteen. And they're playing at the Grand Illusion Theater in Seattle next weekend. And uh, it's uh, the first is Stephen Chow's Journey to the West, which, like the the Chiming Leong film I, I mentioned earlier, is based on on one of the the four great classical novels of of uh, Chinese literature. Uh, I suspect it's going to be very different from it's the Chai probably- film, though. Probably going to be a little different. Yeah, uh, it's it's the first film that 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 Chow has directed in in quite a while. Like almost, it's been ten years since Kung Fu Hustle, and he did like his weird ET movie CJ Seven after that 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 nobody went to see, right. uh, at least when we played it. Uh, so I'm I'm excited to see what he does with the the Journey to the West story. Uh, I think he he did uh, a pair of films called uh, a Chinese Odyssey. Part one and two, and I think they also were based on on stories from Journey to the West. I I could be mixing up my my four great classical ch- novels of Chinese literature, though. How anyway, dare you! Uh, also, also playing at, at the Grand Illusion is uh, on on Friday and Saturday is A Field in England by Ben Wheatley, also from 2013, and this is one of the movies that I I. I uh, missed in in Vancouver that I really wanted to see, and I've heard kind of mixed things about Ben Wheatley. Like I actually heard a lot of negative things about him. He's a, a British director, but this is a film set in in during the English Civil War in the 17th century, and and that's enough for me because I am a huge history geek. So I, I've heard good things about it. Yeah, I, I'm hoping to to go see both of these at the Grand Illusion next weekend. So that's going to be a hell of a double feature. Yeah. <laughs> well, uh, you can find us online at the George Sanders Show.blogspot.com. We're also on Twitter at Geo Sanders Show, and we're also on the email at the George Sanders Show at gmail.com. Um, we're we're gonna take it out a little differently this week. Uh, George is gonna, you know, he's in, he's he's gonna ride the bench. He's he's grabbing some pine. I, I suspect that George Sanders was not a baseball fan. I, decidedly not. I don't think. Yeah, um. I, I, I don't. I don't know that for the fact. For a fact, right? But but he strikes me as more of like a a, a cricket guy. 
Absolutely. By the way, did you see any of the uh, opening series that they held uh, at Dodgers and uh, Diamondbacks at the cricket fields in uh, Sydney, Australia? Not at all. But I did see a movie <laughs> with, with uh, Jaja Gabor in it, and I don't think I'd ever seen her in anything before. Well, there's something. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> she, she, of course, was married to George Sanders. Right. Uh, surprisingly. <laughs> <laughs> Anyway, this is uh, 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 the the great manager of the Baltimore Orioles from the 1980s doing a, a little uh, uh, pre-show radio segment. And uh, a warning here that the language is quite salty. So if you have young children <laughs> listening that uh, you uh, want to uh, uh, that have sensitive ears, now would probably be an okay time to end the show. And, you know, if you do have children and you're making them listen to the George Sanders show, we might have to call Child Protective Services because uh, that's bad parenting right there. <laughs> <laughs> we'll see you next week. Or next time, I guess. Yeah. Whenever the hell we do this thing. We'll see you in a couple of weeks. And now, to the manager's corner with Earl Weaver. Hi, everybody. This is Earl Weaver with Manager's Corner. Today, I have Tom Moore, Oreo broadcaster, back on the show. And I understand Tom's been getting some mail uh, with questions that supposedly I can answer. Now, what the fuck are some of these goddamn questions, Tom? Well, first of all, Earl, George Moore from Baltimore is asking how much we feel the loss of uh, Don Stanhouse. Well, Don Stanhouse was an asshole. He had us in trouble, had the fucking bases loaded. God damn it, almost every fucking time he went out there, he liked to ruin my health smoking cigarettes, and thank God we got Timmy Stoddard coming in out the bullpen right now, sticking a bat up their asses. And that's what it takes. Well, Bill Whitehouse, Earl, that, that certainly is an answer from uh, Frederick Merrill, wants to know why you and the Orioles don't go out and get some more team speed. Team speed, for Christ's sake. You get fucking goddamn little fleas on the fucking bases, getting picked off, trying to steal, getting thrown out, taking runs away from you. You get them big cocksuckers that can hit the fucking ball out the ballpark and you can't make any goddamn mistakes. Uh, well, well, certainly this show is going to go down in history, Earl. Terry Elliott of Washington, D.C. Why wants to know why you don't use Terry Crowley as a designated hitter all the time. Well, Terry, Terry Crowley's lucky he's in fucking baseball, for Christ's sake. He was released by the Cincinnati Reds. He was released by the fucking goddamn Atlanta Braves. We saw that Terry Crowley could sit on his fucking ass for eight innings and enjoy watching a baseball game just like any other fan and has the ability to get up there and break one open in the fucking ninth. So if this cocksucker would mind his own business and let me manage the fucking team, we'd be a lot better off. Well, certainly you've made your opinions known on the fans' questions about baseball, Earl, but let's get to something else. Alice Sweet from Norfolk wants to know the best time to put in a tomato plant. Alice Sweet ought to be worried about where the fuck her next lay is coming from rather than where her next goddamn tomato plant's coming from. If she'd get her ass out to fucking bars at night and go hustling around the goddamn street, she might get a prick stuck in her once in a while. I don't understand where these questions are coming from, Tom. That's about it from Manager's Corner. Go fuck yourself and the fuck with your show coming up next on the Baltimore Oreo Baseball Fucking Network. The Manager's Corner with Earl Weaver is heard 20 minutes before every Orioles regular season game and was sponsored by... Oh.